Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Tech Talks. You're chopping it up with Chuck. I am the editor-in-chief of the magazine Cannabis and Tech Today, and we are very excited to have today as our guest on Cannabis Tech Talks, Ricardo Baca, founder and CEO of Grasslands Journalism. How are you, Ricardo? Hey, Chuck. I'm good, man. How are you doing? Oh man, we're, you know, just hanging on like a hubcap in the fast lane, pretty much. That's, that's all we could do right now, right? Oh, it's, it, it, everything is moving so fast right now. And, you know, of course, you and your team are out there covering uh, the impact of these modern times on this industry, of course. And God, I'm sure you feel the same way that I do because this news cycle is just flying by. The minute you write something, there's an update that needs to be added. Uh, there's a change that ha needs to be made because it's just flying so fast. It's it's unbelievable. I, I couldn't agree more. And you just you just made me realize that it is we almost feel like an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to be out ahead of these stories and to be bringing really, really good, relevant content um, to the industry right now because we are cannabis and tech today and because everything that's happening right now will let's be honest, it's got a lot to do with, with technology, with science, with, you know, the, just, just the way everything's happening. It really does put a lot of pressure on our people. And I'm sure all the other, uh, you know, media people out there that are trying to, to bring lots of good content and be in front of everything. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, uh, I'm a long time uh, journalist myself, uh, but more recently, we're in the PR marketing communication space with Grasslands. Uh, but I still occasionally hop in and write op-eds for different publications when I'm uh, passionate or driven uh, or I have something to say. And yeah, I wrote a piece for MG Magazine a couple weeks ago that was uh, primarily around this issue of cannabis being declared an essential service during COVID-19. And I had to go back and re rewrite it three times just to <laughs> add some updates in the course of two days of pitching that article. And uh, yeah, I mean, but it's the job of a journalist. You just have to be on top of it. And that's why people are coming to you for that, for that information. Well, it's not very often that we get a, a kind of a cannabis rock star uh, on our podcast. And I'm going to just, for the people listening, maybe that aren't familiar with you, I'm going to just give, uh, I've got a little blurb here that we wrote up on your background and let me know if I get this right, because you've got some, you got some stripes here, my friend. Um, <laughs> you are a 20 year veteran journalist, keynote speaker, TEDx veteran, thought leader in modern media and drug policy circles. Um, you served as the Denver Post's first ever editor and, and founded the news vertical, The Cannabis, um, where you covered the advent of adult use cannabis and related issues across the country, around the world. And as if that wasn't enough, you are featured in the documentary Rolling Papers, which is available on Netflix. Did I get it all? <laughs> oh, you know, that's enough for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome, man. And it's so great to have you here because you bring a world of uh, experience and knowledge um, you know, from a standpoint of, of media and the whole industry right now. And I would love to, um, I would love to talk to you about what is happening right now with, with the industry, with cannabis being deemed essential. Um, and then also talk to you a little bit about, you know, kind of, kind of the media's role in all of this and, and find out what's going on over at Grasslands. So, um, with that being said, how did you get into cannabis? Like, what was your kind of like your little story of how you first realized that this was the path you were going to be taking? Well, you know, isn't this such a fun conversation to have with everybody you know? Because, you know, whether you're asking someone how they first were introduced to the plant uh -huh. or you're asking people and colleagues in the industry how they first got their toehold into this crazy industry, this, this crazy space, it's always such a wildly different answer. And, you know, mine's pretty bizarre as well, Chuck, but, uh, you know, the, the brief version uh, uh, is that my introduction to cannabis the plant uh, was somewhat timed with my introduction to cannabis the industry in that if we're going back to 2000, 
uh, let's see, 13. Uh, so about a year after uh, you and I and so many others voted to legalize adult use cannabis here in Colorado, um, I was at a party. Uh, and there were joints being passed around. There were pipes being passed around. I don't smoke cannabis and I never have. I don't smoke anything. And so I would just grab it and pass it and grab uh -huh. it and pass it. And finally, I was inside getting a drink and the host of the party um, yeah. said, hey, do you not consume? What's the deal? And I said, yeah, you know, I don't smoke anything all that successfully. And so it's just not my substance. And he said, well, what about edibles? And I said, well, you know, those have, oh, those have thrown me for a loop every time I've tried them. It's just so inconsistent and unpredictable. Yeah. And he said, Ricardo, you know that, you know, we have a legal market here. It's medical and you can buy a chocolate bar and know exactly how much is in that piece of chocolate. And that got my interest. And so he busted out a chocolate bar, sure enough. And I had a little nibble off the piece. I remember it must have been roughly one or two milligrams of activated THC, although I didn't know what that meant at the time. And sure enough, I was, uh, you know, 60, 90 minutes later, I was immediately alongside all of my friends in terms of headspace. And I woke up the next day without a hangover and um, with these incredible memories uh, and just dreaming about such an incredible experience of what cannabis can bring to a social situation like that. And Instantly, I remember looking at my then girlfriend, now wife, and telling her, wow, you know, I think I have a new favorite substance. That was utterly delightful. My God. And if you can actually have a predictable experience with yeah. edibles, that would be everything. And and sure enough, a couple months later, out of the blue, uh, my boss is at the Denver Post where I was the entertainment editor and uh -huh. the music critic at the time. They approached me and said, hey, we're going to start a covering cannabis like it's any other industry because it's about to be legal like beer here and we want you to run that coverage and so both of these things kind of coincided when mm -hmm. my editors came to me i was already uh, consuming fairly regularly very low milligram dosages yeah. on the on on the medical uh, marijuana side and um i i was very cure uh peaked in terms of my curiosity and so i took that job as marijuana editor for the denver post in november of 2013 and ultimately built a website called the cannabis with my team at the denver post and we set out to cover the implementation of recreational weed throughout the world uh you know and that meant covering implementation in Colorado, of course, and Washington State later that year. Uh, my travels took me to the East Coast and West Coast, Amsterdam, Morocco, Spain, and even Uruguay. I went down to Uruguay, which was captured in that documentary you mentioned, uh, to cover their first of their kind federal legalization because, of course, while Canada was the first G7 country to legalize federally, Uruguay was the first country to legalize federally. And they have a fascinating and uh, increasingly robust system down there. And so that really is my cannabis story of how I found myself as both a regular consumer, but also a proud member of the industry. That's going to be a tough story for anybody to top. You know what I mean? Like I would not <laughs> want to have to follow you on the next podcast because that is, that is awesome. Was the Denver post the first, um, uh, paper to make a, uh, to have a, uh, a cannabis, uh, department or, or a cannabis editor? Yeah. You know, the way, uh, cause we ended up getting a bunch of media around that, you know, I was, sure. I was going on the view with Whoopi Goldberg and, Barbara Walters, and I was on this week with George Stephanopoulos from his New York studio and the Colbert oh. Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a New York Times feature. So the way those journalists kind of put into context what my team and I yes. were doing back here in Denver was that we were the first mainstream media outlet in the world to ever cover cannabis industry as a legitimate beat. Not, not like this is crime happening in our backyard. Rather, right. we're going to cover cannabis like it's the airline industry or like it's oil and gas because this is legal and we're not making a, a statement one way or another. The, the citizens of Colorado chose to legalize this. And so here we are covering it as the state legal industry that it was. And that was really transformative 
because if you think back to 2013-14, there wasn't much legitimate journalism happening around the industry itself because the industry itself really hadn't legitimized itself much with uh, regulations and taxes and things like that. So we were among the first uh, journalists to jump in and really cover it from that deep um, regulatory perspective. So next time somebody tells you elections don't matter, you can go ahead and say, listen, if if it wasn't (laughs) for an election, Colorado wouldn't have led the way and we wouldn't be where we are right now. When you when you got the opportunity to uh, to be heading this up, were you excited? Like, were you like just chomping at the bit, super excited? Or were you a little like because this was something totally new? uh, Were were you a little bit, uh, um, you know, unsure? You know, it was equal parts and and the circumstances of that job offer coming my way were super trippy. When you think about (laughs) my wife and I, uh, she was then my fiance because we were coming back from a month long trip in Southeast Asia where we got engaged in Indonesia and we bought her ring in Thailand, in Northern Thailand. And so I got the voicemail from my boss when we landed at DIA and I was having lunch with him less than 24 hours later when he told me he wanted me to be the paper's first ever marijuana editor. So I was jet lagged. I was not my best self. That said, I was certainly excited at the opportunity because I recognized that we had gotten so much wrong about drug policy in this country. Uh, I knew a little bit about that then. And I also... Uh, recognized that this was also going to be something that's scary because in the age of SEO, you know, if you suddenly become the marijuana editor of the Denver Post in late 2013, then suddenly I knew that the word marijuana would be forever tied to my digital imprint for the rest of my life. And I was like, how do I feel about that? You know, especially because I just started consuming, as I said, and, and I didn't, nobody knew what was going to happen with this industry suddenly being legitimized through regulations and and legislative framework. Um, but, you know, at the very least, I, I was confident in my own abilities as a journalist to, as I said, cover this like it's any other beat. Yeah. And so I knew I could step in, cover the good and the bad, and do so responsibly. And, you know, if legalization ended up working out, which I thought it would, given that, uh, you know, <laughs> the marijuana is not the substance that we've been told. <laughs> that it is, um, then then great. And who knows what kind of opportunities that would present. And if for whatever reason, there were complicated, unintended consequences that came along with legalization, and it didn't work out, then I was going to cover that from the perspective of a journalist. And I'll just close by saying that, like, that was fascinating, because I was a journalist at that point. And when I left the post in late 2016, to start Grasslands, our PR and communications agency, I, I knew at that point I was transitioning. And uh, I was, yeah. of course, still that journalist. And I would still write op-eds as I have, still write stories. But mm-hmm. I also knew that I was very much on the path to being more of an advocate, which you would never be an advocate and a journalist. That just um, Those two words uh, do not share any space in that concentric circle. Right, right. But I mean, looking at this now, you were kind of like the you were like the Jackie Robinson of cannabis editors. You know, you were like the the first one to come through and break that barrier. Were there were there other people in the industry that kind of looked at what you were doing like, oh, this is fluff or oh, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. Was there anybody or was everybody like, dude, you've got the coolest job in the world? Yeah, without a doubt. You know, it was it was certainly complicated. And, 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 and yeah. you know, even though we were the first to kind of jump in and put these kinds of resources, because, you know, first it was me by myself, and then I had a full-time colleague in the next week or two, and then we were hiring freelancers, and we built that team into seven full-time staffers covering uh, cannabis and selling ads for the cannabis and for the Post's marijuana coverage. So it we were the first to do that, but there were people who came before us as well. I think of, you know, cannabis journalists like David Downs in the Bay Area. Later mm-hmm. on, he went to the San Francisco Chronicle as their cannabis editor. Uh, but before even I was appointed as the marijuana editor at the Denver Post, David was doing fantastic legitimate journalism in this space. And I always love shouting out to him and so many others who did good work, just not at the level of a mainstream daily newspaper, but 
certainly when we first started this, it was uh, it was quite controversial. You know, initially, many people in the industry were angry at the post for appointing me a journalist wow. as the cannabis editor, knowing that they wanted somebody from the industry, thinking that I didn't understand the industry, and ah. they were right on that sense because I didn't understand the industry. Uh, but on the on the flip side of that, of course. A legitimate media organization would never hire somebody from that industry to cover the industry. Right. Uh, they would cover. A, they would hire a journalist who has that training uh, to put forth unbiased reporting and hold the powerful accountable uh, on both sides. And and that's why they selected me. And then, of course, a couple months, a year, a couple years into our coverage, it still was not without its controversy because. The prohibitionists, for example, uh, they thought that I was in the industry's pocket because I was writing stories about them. I was hiring food critics to um, write recipes for the cannabis, and I was hiring cannabis critics to write thoughtful strain reviews and product reviews, and I recognized the importance of that. And on the other end of the spectrum, you also had certain people in the industry who thought I was in the prohibitionists' pocket uh, because... I was giving them print and ink uh, because it's, it was my job to represent all sides of the conversation. And so if something happened, of course, I was going to talk to some of those nonprofit organizations that have been fighting legalization for a long time. And because I was giving them that attention, a lot of the industry thought that I was in their pocket. But, you know, one of the first things you learn in Journalism 101 back in college is that you know, uh, you do your best to report uh, from an unbiased perspective. And if if, if people are uh, grumpy with you consistently on both sides of your beat, chances are you're doing your job right because you're holding these powerful people in the industry accountable. You're holding the prohibitionists accountable for what they're saying and the claims they're making. And with my job, I was also holding the regulators accountable. So for example, in March of 2014, when I recognized that a lot of these edibles uh, had very uh, varying inconsistent levels of THC in them, uh, I took those products, 10 different edibles products to a state licensed lab, saw that indeed there were wildly varying amounts of THC in the products. And then I went to the state and asked them about it. And sure enough, they had not yet made uh, testing for potency mandatory among recreational edibles manufacturers. And so that was a big Sunday page one story talking about this major fault of the industry. And some of that fault lied on the uh, regulators because they hadn't made that mandatory and they did make it mandatory two months later. So just an example of me holding everybody accountable as the journalist that I was. That's it's amazing how far we've come, you know, since then, because now you've got uh, I was just at a media event um, back when we had events. Uh, I was at a media uh -oh. event, <laughs> you know, uh, a couple months ago and Rolling Stone um, had uh, had one of their people there. The Boston Globe had one of them. So it's definitely changed a whole lot since 2013. But absolutely, man. Big shout out to, to David Downs, to all all the uh, the journalists that first kind of, uh, you know, came on the scene and started covering this like, like a normal thing, which is, uh, you know, probably helped a lot lead to, um, some of the destigmatization that, that, um, that we're kind of like striving for in the industry now. It's huge. It's huge. I mean, especially put yourself into your shoes of 2013 you, and you think about seeing a major metropolitan daily newspaper suddenly running cannabis strain reviews and uh, <laughs> infused macaroni and cheese recipes. You know, this was a major turning point. And even though uh, various people at the time, you know, like Brookings Institution, the think tank, called me one of the most influential uh, cannabis professionals in the world at the, uh, you know, back in 2014. Um, I appreciated that, but I wasn't a cannabis professional. I was a journalist. Mm -hmm. That said, I recognized that by, by the very basic um, foundation of me doing my job, covering cannabis as a normal industry, I was in the process normalizing and advancing this industry by giving it that 
credibility that, hey, we're going to spend the legitimate resources in covering the implementation of adult use cannabis for the first time in the world and the second time and the third time. So uh, <laughs> that, that was a big part of it. And, and, and I agree with you. Props to everybody who came before us because without those journalists, without those advocates, people like Dennis Perone, who risked his everything in San Francisco to get medical marijuana on the statewide ballot for the first time and actually pass it in California, you know, we are not here having this conversation in 2020 without those folks. That is uh, that is fascinating. So listen, we're going to take a quick break right now, uh, but I want to come back. I want to talk a little bit more about the state of the state right now um, with with uh, the media, with uh, the cannabis industry, find out what's going on at grasslands and also talk about what I think is one of the biggest uh, things that we've seen happen in the past week or so is um, cannabis not only being legitimized, uh, you know, but actually being deemed essential by by governors and by by different states all across the country i think that it's a um it's a pretty big statement of where we are right now so i'm really excited to talk to you about that uh right after we take a quick break thanks for listening to this episode of cannabis tech talks today's episode is brought to you by ulabo us temperature control plays a vital role in cannabis extraction workflow attention to detail and optimization of processing conditions from extraction to component isolation remain critical to maximizing yield and purity. Ulabo US has the scientific equipment you need to accurately and easily control temperature during cannabis processing and post-processing. Ulabo US products provide heating and cooling power for rotary evaporators, closed loop systems, extractions, distillations, decarboxylation, winterization, and more. Visit Ulabo US to learn more. That's www.julabo.us to learn more. Hey, everybody, we're back with Cannabis Tech Talks. You're chopping it up with Chuck, and we are here with Ricardo Baca of Grasslands. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, Ricardo, um, what do you think about kind of the state of the state right now of... Uh, of media in the cannabis industry? You know, I think uh, we are so thankful to have such a robust platform of outlets um, covering this industry, you know, both from the mainstream as well mm -hmm. as the trade side, including what you and your colleagues do, Chuck. You know, this is such an essential time for this industry as it grows and evolves and matures and ultimately becomes the industry we all know that cannabis is capable of becoming. But a big part of that is needing more coverage, needing more legitimate coverage, not only from the mainstream outlets, because I do think that's really important, the perspective they have to offer and the audiences that they serve. But you know, one thing I have very much learned in the last three and a half years after leaving myself a lifetime of mainstream media is the importance of trade media organizations to industries, you know, because I'm a, I'm a mainstream daily newspaper guy, you know, and, and, and sure. that is my background. Sure. As I was covering entertainment, I would interview people who worked at uh, Billboard and covered the live music uh, industry or people who worked at, you know, Variety or the Hollywood Reporter. And so that was my experience with it. But I don't think I recognized the full importance of the billboards and varieties and poll stars and Hollywood reporters of the world until I actually left media and started a public relations agency and now see the integral role that trade media outlets play for uh, the cannabis industry itself. So you know, we've certainly seen some cutbacks in recent weeks, uh, right. in large part because of this COVID impact, you know, layoffs at, at Leafly and never like to see that because I think they do a great job and, and pending layoffs and furloughs at other media organizations. And I send my love and support out to everybody, including you and your team, uh, because we need media covering this space. Media makes an industry more honest and better. It just elevates that industry. Um, so I think we're in a good place now. And I'm also confident that we'll see a lot of these organizations rebuild after um, this COVID 
social distancing passes and we work our way through this forthcoming recession. I think I think you just hit on a really good point, which is that the media is so important and it has such a symbiotic relationship with the industry. And the thing is that if you don't have the media, the media actually does by doing good reporting and good journalism, it drives the industry forward. And if you don't have, you know, if you have newspapers going out of business and you have, you know, uh, magazines and, and websites and stuff that are laying people off in a way, in a roundabout way, it hurts the the industry as a whole because they play an important role. And, um, you know, I mean, I can tell you my relationship with I'm kind of like you, like I, uh, you know, growing up, I always had to have the newspaper. I, I couldn't even start my day without the box score, you know, to see <laughs> to see what had happened the night before, because we didn't have, you know, ESPN on our phones. We didn't have, you know, apps and things like that. It was a newspaper. And and I'm and I remember, you know, if, if I'd spend the night at my buddy's house and they didn't get the paper, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd look around and I'd go and jack the newspaper off the neighbor's porch <laughs> and come in and read it. And then I'm a good guy. I would go and put it back afterwards. But that's how important, you know, newspapers were back then. And I think they're still important now. But during this, um, you know, the coronavirus uh, pandemic that we're having right now, there are newspapers that this is this is kind of the death blow. You know, you're starting to see some of these smaller newspapers and stuff that this was the final, you know, straw. And and that that hurts us all. You know, it's, it seems like it's it's fun to beat up on media and it's fun to, you know, talk about fake news and it's just an easy thing. But the media has an important role, not just in the cannabis industry, but like they're watchdogs, you know, they're the ones that are keeping an eye on things and making sure that it's done right. Like you said, that the, uh, the dosage is right in the edibles, you know, mm -hmm. that, that companies are doing the right thing, that, that politicians and elected officials, you know, when they're doing backroom deals and stuff, you want to have good journalists there watching them. So I think that, um, I think the media is more important than ever. I just saw on Twitter the other day, the Pope gave a shout out to the media. It was on April 1st and he said, Hey, let's, let's, uh, you know, give some love to the media and the people that inform and entertain us. And it was on April 1st. So I don't know if he was messing with us, but, uh, it could have been an April fool's joke, but, but it just goes to show how important the media is and what a role it plays, especially in 2020. And, you know, this Corona, uh, virus pandemic, I think is, is really showing how some of the best of the best can rise up, bring us good information. And I, I get a little bit nervous too, when, uh, um, you know, you start, you start closing down newspapers and websites and journalists get laid off. Um, I just don't think it's good for all of us as a whole. No, in fact, it's legitimately and proven by research bad for all of us when we either lose media outlets or when our mm -hmm. local media outlets or relevant trade media outlets lose their own resources. Um, you know, and, and, and this is the part of the program where I throw out a plea to anybody listening because, you know, we can talk about the importance media all day, but w if we're not supporting these media outlets with our dollars, with our shares, with our attention spans and clicks, um, then we are not uh, then, then, then we are not doing our jobs as informed citizens because, you know, you look at those um, reminders that your iPhone sends you every Sunday talking about the, the amount of time you're spending on your screen. Sure, some of that time is on Insta, but a lot of that time is on other social media networks where you're reading news mm -hmm. or Washington Post, New York Times, Denver Post, Cannabis and Tech Today, MJ Biz Daily, whatever that is. These yeah. are the outlets that are keeping us plugged in and we need to support these outlets, you know, ideally through subscriptions and through readership. Uh, but even if you don't have money for that subscription, make sure you're sharing those links on your social. You know, that's as important because you are helping this media outlet that you believe in, that you rely on. You are helping them find a new audience and find more readership, which allows them to translate that readership into advertising and sponsorship revenue. So we need to put our time and our money where our mouths are. It's massively important that we support media right now because um, they're supporting us. 
I, man, dude, I wish I could give you like a round of applause right now because you just nailed that. And what, what are you guys doing right now? What's your mission at Grasslands? You know, what's most well, important to what you guys are doing right now? Cause again, um, yeah, these are crazy times and you guys are very, very key, uh, in the industry. What's, what's going on over there? Yeah, without a doubt. So, you know, our, um, in, in normal times, Grasslands is a strategic communications agency. Uh, we help clients with public relations, mm-hmm. thought leadership, as well as content marketing. And so thought leadership is your bylined articles publishing in media outlets. And it's also you speaking, um, you know, in podcasts like this one or uh, at events and conferences. And content marketing is, of course, making sure that your own media house is in order. So, you know, your blog on your website and your website copy in general, not to mention your social media. Um, And so that's what we specialize in. And that is really where we still are right now. Because mid COVID, here we are a month into some of these shelter in place restrictions uh, in the US, um, we are practicing a lot of crisis communications, which is a large facet of any agency's PR program. And it happens to be one where we really excel in, especially because Grasslands comes from such a journalism-minded approach. And so lots of crisis communications, these brands in the cannabis and hemp industries, and we work with other um, out, uh, organizations in government and technology and healthcare. You know, we need to be communicating as brands with all of our stakeholders, you know, and whether that is the end consumer or our partners and vendors or our ownership and investors, that communication is so essential at a time like now where public markets are freaking out and we're heading into a recession. And generally, we're all stupefied because we're looking into the abyss that is known as the unknown. And that's really, really scary. And so now is the time for a brand to make sure they are communicating with their most important stakeholders. And that's when you have your agency. So that's where we're spending a lot of time right now, Chuck. Um, We also just introduced a brand new service. Um, a service that we've never offered before. And that is this concept of virtual thought leadership. Um, You know, it's one thing when we can manage your speaking engagements at conferences and expos. But right now, we can't really do that because those conferences and expos aren't happening. And so um, this virtual thought leadership program is helping brands create panels and webinars uh, of their own, or even just creating Instagram live strategies so they can continue to reach out to those target audiences, um, which is so, so essential. Chuck, I'm sure you see a downturn on certain areas of your business. And, and we've seen a, a downturn in our business as oftentimes marketing expenses are the first to be cut. And of course, that can be an advertisement in your magazine, or it could be your monthly retainer with Grasslands. But um, I'm here to make the argument that now more than ever, it is so incredibly important for a brand or a business professional services or product based to be communicating with its people. So now is when people should be doubling down with their marketing spend, making sure that their advertisements can still go through, making sure that they can still honor these arrangements with their agencies because, you know, there's never been a more important time in the legal cannabis industry to communicate with your stakeholders than right now. Um, heading into the first recession of the legal cannabis era, as well as heading into this era where cannabis is increasingly considered an essential service, as you said, which is so huge. So um, that is what we do at Grasslands. And anybody can learn more about what we do at mygrasslands.com. So you're saying that brands should not go dark right now. Oh, going dark would be the worst thing a brand could possibly do right now. And, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to their situation Mm -hmm. because uh, these brands are facing challenges of their own. But for example, if you can't 
honor that agreement that you have with the agency running your social media, for example. Mm -hmm. You need to run your own social media. You cannot go dark right now. That would be a devastating blow to everything you've been working for through all these, all these years. I've been uh, I've been through a couple of situations similar to this. Of course, nothing. I don't think any of us have experienced anything exactly like this. But uh, you know, I was working in media during uh, during nine eleven. Um, you know, selling advertising for Major League Baseball, and wow. that was uh, you know you know everything shut down for a few days, and that was a you know obviously a monumental, uh, you know, thing that happened in this country. And then I remember, you know, 2008 when we were losing hundreds of thousands of jobs a week and, and the whole economy was imploding, same type of deal, right? You had uh, companies saying, we don't want to advertise, you know, we don't want to, uh, communicate, you know, we don't, we don't want to do anything. And, um, I think what I've discovered is that, you know, tone matters. The, 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 the content that you are putting and the message you're putting out definitely matters. And experts like you guys can help companies know how to talk and how to speak right now, because you probably don't want to be all happy go lucky with your messaging and, and your marketing and such. But, um, it's always been a good time for a brand to forge a, a lasting relationship with, their audience with their consumers during times like this by being smart and being out in front of it and communicating, you can really build a bond and you can really solidify your brand's image during times like this by, by communicating smartly. So I, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, for some of the brands out there during a time of economic crisis, like you just said, marketing budgets are the first thing to go. And so if a company is trying to grab market share, it's a good time. Like, like you said, instead of cutting back on the marketing, double down on your marketing spend because you're going to get great rates and you're going to be able to grab market share where, uh, during normal times you might not have been able to do that. So, um, really, really important that you guys are helping these companies navigate these, uh, you know, difficult waters right now. Um, but, but, but it's essential and, and, and what you guys are doing is essential. The media is essential right now. Um, and well, pretty good segue. The industry is essential right now. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that um, when the governors started laying down what was going to be essential and what wasn't, that uh, the cannabis made the cut? Well, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about this subject, as you know, Chuck. But, yeah. Um, I think this is a historic moment, not only for cannabis, but also for progressive drug policy reform. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that cannabis legalization is the biggest shift in drug policy reform of our lifetimes, hands down. But when you look at the timeline of cannabis becoming legal uh, for sale and possession and use, uh, you know, let's say 100 years from now, we're going to be looking at that timeline. And this will be on that timeline, March 2020. Uh, Pennsylvania and Illinois and uh, California and other states and city governments are declaring that cannabis dispensaries are essential businesses like pharmacies, grocery stores, gas stations, hospitals. This is, I mean, this shift is uh, the importance of it cannot be downplayed. It is, it is legitimately monumental. And I say that without hyperbole, you know, because what this means is this is acceptance where we haven't had it. You know, so a, a very decided majority of legalization initiatives, I think all but one have come about because the people said so. Uh, the people yeah. said we need to legalize cannabis medically or recreationally. I, I think only one was actually done by government at this point. And so, but this is the government's opportunity to say, hey, cannabis dispensaries are categorized similarly to pharmacies, and that is why they must remain open. And what's so huge about it, Chuck, is is sure, this is huge for the industry, and I know I have a vested interest in this industry succeeding. Without a doubt, I am going to be the first to acknowledge that. But most importantly, this is about patient access. 
Mm-hmm. And whether we are talking about medical dispensaries or adult use, uh, patients actually shop at both, uh, as I wrote in one of my recent op-eds, you know, and and drawing a line like some of these state governments have done between recreational or medical is is a broken construct. And it just doesn't make any sense because we have legitimate scientific research that has been published in mainstream medical journals that straight up tells us a majority of the consumers shopping at an adult use shop are shopping for medical purposes. And so we shouldn't pretend uh, that that is not the case. And therefore, we need to protect access by keeping the recreational shops open in addition to keeping the medical shops open. Because as you know, that is something of an issue that we're that we're looking at. Yeah, you've got, you know, if you just went down a laundry list of, um, you know, contributions from the industry right now during this time, you've got you've got tax revenue, you've got jobs, you know, th- 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 there's a lot of people employed, not only in the dispensaries, but, you know, on the back end um, uh, and, you know, even um, uh, the uh, the companies that are making products for this right now, you know, um, uh, machinery and equipment and stuff like that. That's been deemed essential as well. Um, so you you really do have, and then of course there's there's the relief. You know, there's the fact that that people do need access to this. They this is a medicine. Um, I was talking to my friend. Uh, in Florida, who's a nurse. And I told her, we were talking about how cannabis is, is essential here and everything like that. And she was laughing. And I was like, why are you laughing? And she's like, cannabis is essential. And I was like, no, 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 no. Let's go through this. It really is. And, and they're not just doing that to be nice. They're doing it because it has become, I think, established as a part of the community and something that is really important. And, uh, Man, can can you imagine this back in back in 2013? It it being like no. it is today. No, this as I said, this is a huge step forward. And and um, you know, my second op-ed that I wrote just last week was uh, was an open letter to Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, and uh-huh. it published in our alt weekly newspaper here called Westward. And you know, I just wanted to take an opportunity to share some of this data. With Hancock, because I know Mayor Hancock is a very, very smart man. He's yeah. serving his third and final term in Denver. He lobbied. Is he a friend of the industry? Is he? A, is he a? Is he pro cannabis? No, I wouldn't say he's a friend of the industry. He actively okay. lobbied okay. against Amendment 64 back in 2012. Uh, you know, but that's okay. Uh-huh. That was a different era. He has come mm-hmm. around to the people saying that this should be the truth, and he has directed his administration to implement this um, this regulated marketplace. Um, and 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 he had a he had a a momentary lapse of judgment last week. We'll call it because he uh, just like the city of San Francisco before him, he put out an order saying, "Hey, we're going into shelter in place designation in the city and county of Denver, and these businesses will stay open." including medical cannabis dispensaries, and these businesses will be shuttered. Uh, and that included recreational. And as you know, Chuck, um, our neighbors, our, our fellow Denverites uh, flooded cannabis dispensaries. There were long lines. Social distancing was not being uh, respected. Not at and all. There was no social distancing. There were lines coming out and around the corner. And yeah, he created a little mini panic and everybody was, uh, <laughs> instead of hoarding toilet paper, they were... <laughs> They were hoarding cannabis and edibles and stuff because they were afraid they weren't going to have access to it. He did, you know, and that's and that's so true. And thankfully, he saw the light. And yeah. three hours later, he reversed parts of that order, which allowed recreational shops to stay open. And so my piece ran in Westward two days later and just said, Mayor Hancock, please look at this data and understand that patients get their medicine at both um, you and the Marijuana Enforcement Division and the governor and the Department of Revenue can help these businesses stay open by with curbside uh, delivery or help mm-hmm. implement actual adult use delivery, which these businesses can't even apply for until January 1st, 2021. Um, do something, but allow patients to continue having access because this is paramount and so far so good in Denver, but we also know that some of our fellow uh, patients and advocates are not so lucky. For example, what's happening in Massachusetts with the governor's order there. Uh, You know, he shuttered recreational shops 
allowed medical shops to stay open. And he will go down as being on the wrong side of history. And um, this is a major, major struggle for a lot of these cannabis businesses in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's, and I think it's personally a tragedy because the blueprint has been laid out on yeah. how you can do this right how you can protect access for patients. And Governor Baker in Massachusetts is just getting it wrong. He said he didn't want out-of-staters flooding into his state to buy recreational cannabis and potentially spreading corona, which is which just seems like so disingenuous. You know what I mean? Like if they really wanted to stop that, they could say, you know, only for people with Massachusetts licenses. Or, you know what I mean? Like there's Sometimes the things these governors are saying or their reasoning is it sort of almost defies logic. I don't know if you heard uh, the governor of Georgia, Georgia, he just came out yesterday and said, well, we had no idea here in Georgia that people could be asymptomatic with Corona and go around and pass it. We, we had no idea. Do you know where the CDC is based? <laughs> wow. It's in Atlanta, Jeez. Georgia. <laughs> My it's, word. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. But uh, one other thing was, um, you know, we were one of the first ones to cover the fact that talking about cannabis industries and, and, and um, you know, them being essential is that their testing equipment in the labs that they use to test uh, cannabis can be used and can be converted to test for Corona. And uh, I believe there's like a thousand labs, you know, in, in the United States that have the capabilities with their uh, like a PCR uh, tests. And um, up in Canada, the, the government is actually asking the cannabis uh, uh, labs to help join the fight in uh, in testing. So that's a you know, that's a pretty cool thing for the for the industry to be able to step up and help out right now when when we kind of need all hands on deck. That is huge. And I'm so glad that you guys covered that. That is, that is such a great story. So, um, one last question I got for you, and I, I could talk to you all day, but uh, I know you've got things to do, and my and Adam Adam's trying to give us the hook right now. Um, do you think that that um, this bodes well for national legalization, just kind of the current state of the state right now, or do you think that because there's so much there's so much on the plate right now that this could actually slow down, um, you know, national legalization? Uh, interesting that you asked that question because I was talking with some colleagues about that just this morning, Chuck. Um, but I think primarily this new um, this new happening of cannabis being designated essential, mm -hmm. I think this is absolutely going to put um, federal legalization on something of a fast track. I think because of this conversation that's come up because of COVID nineteen is is going to push us toward federal legalization sooner than it would have happened without this awful virus taking over the world. And and let me tell you why, because, you know, when you have these state governments coming out and saying cannabis dispensaries are essential businesses, that just changes the conversation immediately. As yeah. I said, it's a historic leap. And my thinking is that we will see after this initial outbreak of coronavirus, um, these tight regulations surrounding cannabis, we're going to see those loosen. Um, the, all of the roadblocks that are in place for this industry, we're going to see some of those start to disappear. And primarily, this is going to happen at a local level. Uh, you know, you look at Colorado as this petri dish example. Um, you know, previously we had a governor who actively lobbied against Amendment 64 and adult use regulations. And that was John Hickenlooper, of course, who uh, failed to run for president and is now running for the U.S. Senate. Um, and now our current governor, Jared Polis, who is the first openly gay person to ever be elected uh, as, as, an, as a U.S. governor. Uh, he also is a friend of the industry. He's a very reasonable governor, government official, as he always has been, Go going back to his multiple terms, serving Boulder County in the U.S. House of Representatives. And Polis understands this. He understands that this industry has greater potential than it is accomplishing right now because um, the potential is very much there to go out and take away some of these restrictions, some of these um, ridiculous re regulations, and some of these roadblocks that just do not need to be there. Because cannabis is one of the most, 
highly regulated industries in the world. And we don't need to be this highly regulated. We're slowly starting to figure out this. I mean, look at some of the emergency regulations that have been put in place in the last few months alone in Colorado and Michigan and Massachusetts and and even Illinois, where they have fast-tracked things like curbside delivery, or they have opened up delivery programs, allowing home delivery when that wasn't there. They've loosened some of the marketing and advertising restrictions in Massachusetts, where some of these dispensaries can say, hey, remember, we do deliver. Here is where our delivery radius is. And that government has actually even allowed them to increase their delivery radiuses for some of those medical shops. So we are seeing some of these overly strict regulations start to be peeled back. And I think that will ultimately lead to a warmer federal environment where federal illegality no longer exists. So I think this is very good for this conversation about legal cannabis, uh, even as we continue to struggle as, uh, as a society, as an economy with this ravaging, awful coronavirus. Well, I, I I think you're absolutely right. Um, this has been a really, really enjoyed chatting with you, Ricardo. Uh, the last time, you remember the last time we all got together was uh, was for some uh, some Mexican food. Yes. And we're talking about how, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to have some tequila. And uh, now we can't do that. But I am really looking forward to, uh, you know, when once once we get on the other side of this, being able to, you know, get out and, and meet with people again and, you know, enjoy a enjoy a meal or, or you know, something like that. And I, and I really look forward to getting a chance for our staffs to get back together again. Um, really appreciate your leadership in this in this space. And uh, yeah, I think if we if we all stick together and we keep working hard, um, you know, we can help a lot of brands and we can help a lot of companies make it through uh, this pandemic right now. But uh, but thank you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It's absolutely been a pleasure to chat with you. Chuck, I appreciate you. And and honestly, thank you so much for the work that you and your team are doing during this pandemic. It's um, the information you're putting out there is 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 changing lives and saving businesses. So on behalf of the industry. Thank you, man. Oh, you're the best. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cannabis Tech Talks. If you like this episode, uh, make sure that you subscribe, share it with a friend, and don't forget to follow us on social media so you can stay in the conversation. And don't forget to check out uh, Grasslands if you have questions or you have an interest in um, um, being able to have someone help you with your PR, help you with your communications. You can't do any better than the pros at Grasslands. So thank you again. Everybody have a great day. Be safe and we'll talk to you soon.